Good morning. My name is Debbie. The Old Testament reading is found in Exodus 34, 6 through 7. The Lord passed in front of him and complained, complained, proclaimed, (laughs) the Lord, the Lord, a God who is compassionate and merciful, very patient, full of great loyalty and faithfulness, showing great loyalty to a thousand generations, forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion, yet by no means clearing the guilty, punishing for their parents' sins, their children and their grandchildren, as well as the third and fourth generation. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Colleen. The New Testament reading is found in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 15 through 22. This is why he is the mediator of a new covenant, which is a will, so that those who are called might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance on the basis of his death. His death occurred to set them free from the offenses committed under the first covenant. When there's a will, you need to confirm the death of the one who made the will. This is because a will takes effect only after a death, since it's not in force while the one who made the will is alive. So not even the first covenant was put into effect without blood. Moses took the blood of calves and goats, along with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the lost scroll itself and all the people after he had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people. While he did it, he said, this is the blood of the covenant that God established for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled the meeting tent and also all the equipment that would be used in the priest's service with blood. Almost everything is cleansed by blood, according to the law's regulations, and there is no forgiveness without blood being shed. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Eric. Thank you to those of you who are able for standing for the gospel reading, which is found in Matthew chapter 26, verses 26 through 30. While they were eating, Jesus took bread blessed it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body. He took a cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, drink from this, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many so that their sins may be forgiven. I tell you, I won't drink wine again until that day when I drink it in a new way with you in my Father's kingdom. Then, after singing songs of praise, they went to the Mount of Olives. The Gospel of the Lord. Please remain standing with me as we pray this morning. Father and Son and Holy Spirit of God, here we are gathered, your people gathered together in your name, lifting up your praise and asking that you'd speak to us, that you would open our ears to hear, you'd open our minds to understand, that you would light our hearts on fire with the holy love of God, that we might know you and be equipped to follow you in new ways. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, we pray and all God's people said, Amen, amen. You may be seated. Good morning, New Life Downtown. It's great to see you. 
Those of you who are online, hello, we hope that you are well. Those of you that are visiting or new or newer here, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life Downtown. Our lead pastor, Pastor Glenn, is over in the UK today preaching this morning and also celebrating his birthday. Uh, I won't tell you how old he is, uh, but he's nine months older than I am and I'm 43. Uh, so if you, if you want to go, uh, if you follow Glenn on social media or you have his email address, you want to pop him a quick uh, birthday hello, I know he would appreciate that, especially since he's over there while his family is here. Uh, I got a quick public service announcement before we dive into the sermon this morning. This Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. Uh, Ash Wednesday is the day that marks the beginning of a season in the church calendar called Lent. Uh, so for those of you who may be newer to faith or newer to church, the church has its own calendar, its own way of kind of marking an observing time. Uh, the way that the calendar works is it follows the life of Jesus. It helps us to sort of order our days around remembering Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. And so the season of Lent is a 40-day season. It's a season that's marked by fasting where we give things up and praying, and by what's traditionally called almsgiving or generosity, giving things out for the sake of others. Uh, so it's a 40, 40 days where we do that, where we walk with Jesus to his cross, and we prepare hearts to celebrate his resurrection on Easter Sunday. That 40-day season begins on a Wednesday, because we don't count Sundays in the counting. So if you ever add it up, you're like, this doesn't make sense. Just skip Sundays, because Sundays you always get to feast, because we're always celebrating Easter on uh, every Sunday. So you count the days up, you go back, and it starts on a Wednesday. And so it starts with a service called Ash Wednesday, where we gather together, uh, and we receive the sign of the cross on our forehead or on our hands in ashes. The ashes are actually made from the previous year's palm branches, where we recognize how frail our prayers, our, our praise can be, and we repent together as we prepare uh, to follow Jesus into that season. So we're going to have an Ash Wednesday service right here at 6.30 on Wednesday night. The service will last about 60 to 75 minutes. It's an all-generation service, so kids and everybody all together are welcome to come. We'd love to see you again 6.30 here on Wednesday. Wednesday. All right? Good. Okay. So we are in the middle of a series called Who is God? Uh, the series exists in three parts for us because as Christians, we believe in one God who exists eternally in three persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so we are this morning and on Ash Wednesday ending uh, our exploration of what it means to call God Father. Uh, and then we will be transitioning next Sunday to talking about Jesus the Son. When we began the series on the Father, we started with the Nicene Creed, an old summary statement of what Christians always, everywhere have always believed. And we said that we believe in one God who is the Father who is the Almighty, who's the maker of heaven and earth. And then last week, Pastor Glenn transitioned us from looking at the creed to looking at what the scriptures say about God, particularly in the passage Exodus 34, one of the kind of fundamental passages in the Old Testament, really kind of a creed in the Old Testament about who God is. And I'm going to pick up there today. If you have Bibles, you can turn to Exodus 34, beginning in verse 6. It says this, the Lord 
Yahweh, the name of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's God. Yahweh passed in front of him and passed in front of Moses. And he proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh. This God is compassionate and merciful. This is what we talked about last week. Very patient, or your translation might say, slow to anger and full of great loyalty and faithfulness, showing great loyalty to a thousand generations and forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but punishing for their parents' sins, their children and their grandchildren, as well as the third and fourth generation. On Wednesday, during the Ash Wednesday service, I'm going to tackle that punishing sins part. If you've read this passage a couple times, you're like, wait a minute. How does this all work? I'm a little bit troubled uh, by this passage. Again, another reason to come on Wednesday night. We're going to tackle that. But today I want to look at this phrase, great loyalty, great faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness, as we sang earlier today. Your uh, translation may say something like abounding in love or abounding in loving kindness. What we want to explore today is what does it mean when we call God faithful? When we proclaim as the people of God that God is faithful, what do we mean? And what do we especially mean by that in times of war? As we look around the world and we see war and pandemics and famine and poverty and racism and injustice, as we look around the world and we see all the things that are broken and bent in our world, what does it mean for us to declare that God is faithful even in the middle of that all? Or maybe when we look at our own lives and we experience our own sense of uncertainty, uncertainty about our finances, uncertainty about our future, uncertainty about our vocation, uncertainty about education, uncertainty about so many things. We're going, okay, wait, there's so many things feel unstable. Things feel like they're shifting and moving underneath my feet. And I just want stable ground to stand on. What does it mean to say and to worship a God who is faithful in the middle of that? What does it mean to say that God is faithful in a faithless or an unfaithful world? What does it mean to call God faithful even when we recognize our own unfaithfulness? How do we hold all those things together? The original language of this passage, the Hebrew word here is a word that we've talked about several times at New Life Downtown. It's the word chesed. You want to say that with me? Chesed. And give you a chance to clear your throats. Uh, and kind of, now you can take another drink and go from there. Chesed is this idea, uh, or it's a word that gets translated a bunch of different ways. Sometimes in the same translation, they'll translate it a different way many times. It gets translated sometimes as love or loving kindness or faithfulness or loyalty or kindness. It gets translated in a variety of ways. But the best sense of the word is that it means covenant faithfulness. That God is full of covenant faithfulness. So in order to understand what it means to say that God is faithful, we have to understand what it means for God to be in covenants. If he's faithful to a covenant, well, what is this sort of idea? Because if you've been around church for a while, you've probably heard people throw around this term. It's one of the many words that we just kind of throw around at church, uh, covenant and righteousness and kingdom and sanctification and eschatology and ecclesiology. We'll throw around these kind of terms and everyone's like, yeah, I think that too. 
And we're not sure exactly what we're saying sometimes with those words. If you're new to faith or new to church, sometimes half the battle is learning a whole new vocabulary. It's sort of like if you came to my house in the summer, my poor wife and children know that from, well, this year, the start date is a little bit unknown, but from sometime at the beginning, end of March, the beginning of April until October, if I'm home, there's likely a baseball game on the television. I'm that guy that watches baseball on TV. And not only that, I talk to the TV while I'm watching the game as if I'm there and as if the players can hear me and as if my strategy for the game actually matters and makes a difference. And so if you're listening closely, you'll hear me say things like slider and ribby and Uncle Charlie and paint the corner and climb the ladder and toss a no-no. And you're like, what is this guy saying? It's a whole new vocabulary that comes from the game. You can ask Caleb Friesen. He had the, the, the suffered through going to a game with me uh, one time in Denver. And most of the time was me trying to explain terminology to him. But that's how it can feel like when we come to church. When I came into church as a teenager, I remember all the time just being like, I don't know what that word means. And feel like, can I ask? Am I allowed to ask? If I ask, does that, does that mean I'm not a Christian anymore? Like, what do I do with all of these terms? So covenant is one of them. In our world, covenant is a religious term. Like, that's the only place that we really use it is within religious contexts or within Christianity. But in the ancient world, that wasn't so. The word actually originates as a social, legal, political term. It originates outside of faith. And it's the people of God and God himself who actually sort of co-opt the language to help Israel understand itself and its relationship with God. The closest term that we have in our vocabulary is the term treaty. It's the idea of a treaty is what a covenant really is. Its use was widespread, not only in the Old Testament, but in the world around Israel, that nations and tribes and clans and individuals were making treaties with one another. They were simply agreements made between two parties where they swore to one another under oath to act in certain ways toward one another, that they would swear under oath that we're going to treat each other this way, that they would swear certain promises. We're going to keep these promises. We're going to make these vows between one another. We see it kind of scattered all throughout the Old Testament. One example is Genesis chapter 26, verse 28, a story about Isaac and Abimelech. And the passage says this, they said, we now see that the Lord Yahweh was with you. And we propose, therefore, then, a formal agreement between us that we may draw up a treaty. The underlying term is the Hebrew word for covenant. We may draw up a covenant with you. You must not treat us badly so, since we haven't harmed you and since we have treated you well at all times. We've treated you well. Now let's make an agreement that you're going to treat us well also. We're not going to treat one another in harmful ways, but we're going to be kind to one another. Then we will send you away peacefully, for you are now blessed by the Lord. You can see the kind of reciprocity that gets developed here in these relationships, that there is a relationship that gets sort of codified, and there is agreements that are made to act in certain ways toward one another. Because that's at the core of a covenant, most of the ancient treaties that we have record of actually use familial language to describe what's happening. 
that they talk about it in terms of we're going to act like family toward one another. That if it's a covenant between two equal parties, then they'd say, hey, you know what we're going to do? We're going to act like brothers toward one another. So if somebody comes to try to beat you up, I'm going to come and beat them up instead. We're going to act like brothers. Or if it was between unequal parties, say a, a, the king of a large and powerful kingdom or empire making a covenant with a smaller or lesser kingdom, say, hey, you know what? I'm going to be like your dad and you're going to be like my son. I'm going to provide for you these things. And in turn, you're going to agree to this kind of relationship. I'm going to be your dad. You're going to be like my kid. This is actually what covenants do. Covenants make family out of non-family. It's what they do. They make family out of non-family. We can think about it in our world about what happens on a marriage. That two people who are not related by blood now through vows under oath to one another make a commitment and they become family. I now present to you Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. Same thing happens in adoption uh, ceremonies that people who were not family biologically have now become family with one another. We see in other cultures, the idea of godparents carries on this same sense of not being biologically related, but being so connected to one another in community that you are like family. In church history and monasteries, they use this sort of language. We are brothers with one another. We are sisters with one another. We're going to live in such a way as if we are family. Even friends will use the same kind of language with one another, that there are friends who are like family. You can think about those moments in maybe in media history, Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn becoming blood brothers with one another, or Legolas and Aragon and the whole crew coming together, becoming the fellowship of the ring, making that covenant to one another, or my favorite, Goonies never say die. No one, that was just a joke for everyone over 40 in the room. There are these moments where friends become so close to one another, they act like family. Sociologists call those kind of legal relationships that come from marriage affinity kinship or affinity relationships. These other ones they describe as fictive kinship, that we are not family, but we are going to act like family toward one another. This is what a covenant is. It makes family out of non-family. Israel knew that this is what covenants did. And so when God initiated a covenant with them, they knew exactly what he was up to. They knew what God was saying was that he wanted to become family with them. He said, I want to be your God and I want you to be my people. I will be as a father to you and you will be my children, my beloved daughters and sons. This is what God is doing when he's entering into covenant. He's making family out of non-family. It's the invitation that gets extended to all of us to become part of the family of God, to declare God as our father and one another as each other's siblings. So covenants make family out of non-family, but they also, they come with something. All covenants come with commitments. 
They come with obligations. They come with vows. They come with promises. Last week, Pastor Glenn said there's no such thing as a gift with no strings attached. That every gift has some sort of either desire for reciprocity or desire for relationship. That there is something that's meant to actually continue and to connect. So all covenants the same way come with obligations. They come with obligations on both parties because at its core, a covenant is a set of promises. It's a set of vows saying we are going to be family. Therefore, we're going to act like family together. That if we are going to be brothers, if we are going to be sisters, if we are going to be dad and child, then this is what that relationship has to look like. That we have to have agreement upon what it means to be family together. And we all, of course, have sort of our own ideas of what that looks like and maybe going, I'm not sure anyone would want to enter into my family uh, in that way and share those kind of meals together or conversations. But outside of that, this is God inviting us into his family. But a covenant binds people together in a relationship that benefits one another. There are privileges and there are responsibilities. There are gifts and there are requirements. This is what the Old Testament laws fundamentally are. They are the requirements, the obligations, the commitments of the covenant. And what we find throughout the ancient world in covenants is that there's one sort of primary expectation. There's one primary expectation that undergirds everything, and that primary expectation is loyalty. It's faithfulness. It's exclusivity. See, in the ancient world, you could only enter into a covenant with one other party. You couldn't be in a covenant with more than one. You had, in other words, you had to dance with the one that brung you. But you couldn't actually have covenants with multiple parties. Imagine trying to be in a covenant relationship with both Egypt and Babylon, or Egypt and Assyria, or with Yahweh and Baal, or Asherah. At some point, the commitments are going to start to clash with one another. You can't give full loyalty, full commitment, full support, full-hearted worship to two. You can only give it to one. And so a covenant had to be exclusive. This is why the very first commandment that we read in the Ten Commandments is this. I am the Lord your God, who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, you shall have no other gods before me. You cannot enter into a covenant with another God. There can be me and only me. And in the covenant world, when someone fulfills their obligations, when they keep their promises, when they hold up their end of the bargain, when they actually come through and do what it is that they said they were going to do, they're declared to be chesed. They're declared to be loyal. They're declared to be faithful. They're declared to be trustworthy and true. They said, oh, this is a covenant partner who is faithful. This is one who has done what they said they were going to do. This is one who's proven to be true to the word. And the Old Testament says that God is full of this. That he is full of chesed. He is full of loyalty. He is full of faithfulness. He abounds in it. Genesis or Exodus 34, full of great loyalty, full of chesed and faithfulness, showing great loyalty, showing chesed. In other words, keeping it 
to a thousand generations. When we say that our God is faithful, what we are fundamentally saying is that our God keeps his covenants, that our God keeps his promises, that our God is true to his word, that our God can be trusted because he has proven himself to be loyal, to be faithful, to actually do what it is that he said he is going to do, that our God is a God who keeps his promises. He has fulfilled all of his obligations. Then when we look through the Old Testament, we can see that God is faithful to the covenant they made with Adam. He's, he's faithful to the covenant they made with Noah. He's been faithful to the covenant he made with Abraham. He's as faithful to the covenant he made with Noah. He's faithful to the covenant that he made with Moses. He's faithful to the covenant that he made with David. And therefore, we can say we know he is going to be faithful to the covenant he made with us through Jesus. He is the faithful one. He has already forgiven us. He's already redeemed us. He's already adopted us just like he said he was going to do in the covenant. And he is filling us with his spirit. He's making us new. He's making us one with him and one with each other. He is freeing us from sin and death. He is already fulfilling his obligations to us. He's already coming through. And we know that he will return and he will make things right again. So in the midst of all of the uncertainty, in the midst of war, in the midst of famine, in the midst of poverty, in the midst of pain, in the midst of fear and anxiety and all all the things that we're facing, we're wondering, God, where are you in the midst of all of it? We can say, this is what we know to be true of our God, that our God is the God who keeps covenant with his people. And so even though we can't see all the evidence of it right now, we do know that there will come a day. There will come a day, as Jay prayed earlier in the service, when we sit at his banquet table and we can look back on everything and we can say, God kept his promises. Maybe he didn't keep them in the way that we thought or when we thought or how we thought. Maybe everything didn't sort of match up with all of our own expectations and ideals, but we'll be able to look back on it and say, yeah, it was perfect. That he kept his covenants. That he kept his promises. He's true to his word. But of course, covenant always involves two parties. So what about us? We can declare with all sort of gusto that God is the one who is faithful to the covenant. What about us? The story of scripture, the story of humanity, the story of Israel, the story of the church, the story of you, the story of me, is that we are a group of people who show ourselves over and over and over again to be unfaithful to the covenant, who come up short who fail, who fail to be faithful in the way that God is faithful to us. In the ancient world, when one party breaks their end of the covenant, it actually nullifies the covenant, sort of breaks it, it's over. And it resulted in significant consequences for whoever the covenant breaker was. And what they would do is they would actually enact this out in the covenant ceremony that in the ceremony that sort of ratified the treaty, that ratified the covenant, there would be a way of sort of enacting this out that would show exactly what the consequences of breaking the covenant would be. And the idiom for establishing or making a covenant in Hebrew is to cut a covenant. It refers to this image. That what would happen is when 
two parties were going to make a covenant with one another is that they would take sacrificial animals and they would divide them in half. They'd cut them in two. And then they'd separate them into the two pieces and sort of make a little bit of an aisle uh, with the, le- you know, the left side of the carcass over here and the right side of the carcass over here. Aren't you glad you haven't had lunch yet? Um, it's like, this, we, we do the services in the morning because of this. And so separating out the carcasses. And then what would happen is, uh, especially in the covenant where the covenant partners were unequal, there was like a greater king and a lesser king. Then the lesser king would walk through the carcasses, kind of walk down the aisle. This gives different imagery to what we normally think of of walking down the aisle, right? So they would walk down the aisle with carcasses on each side, reciting their vows, reciting their oaths, and saying, if I break my vow, if I break covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. May this be the consequence for my unfaithfulness. May this happen to me. So they'd walk down, recite these vows, and then what they'd do is they'd pull out the trigger and cook up the food, and I'll eat it together. Now, I'm not sure I'd be in the, in, like, in the mood for a meal at that point. Like, I'm making these vows, there's blood everywhere, and I've just said, hey, if I fail, I hope I die too. Let's eat together. Doesn't sound like my kind of party, but it's what would happen. And we actually see this picture take place in Genesis chapter 15, when God is making a covenant with Abraham. And it says this, Genesis chapter 15, verse 9. So he said, God said, bring me a three-year-old female calf and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a dove and a young pigeon. And Abram took all of these animals and watch what he does. He splits them in half and he lays the halves facing each other, but he didn't split the birds. I'm guessing because maybe that's just harder to do. I've never split a bird before, um, except on Thanksgiving. Um, But I'm guessing maybe that's just hard. And then when the vultures swooped down on the carcasses, Abram waved them off. I'm glad that they add that detail in there for us. It's like he's just kind of waiting around. There's carcasses everywhere. And of course, then there is birds coming. He's waving them off. This is what he spends his day doing. But then after the sunset, Abram slept deeply. I'm not sure I could sleep in the middle of this moment either, much less eat. But Abram does. And the terrifying and deep darkness settled over him. The word sleep here is actually the same word that's used of Adam uh, what, right before Eve is pulled from his side. That God causes a deep sleep to fall on Adam. It should cue us in for the readers. Maybe God's up to something here. Maybe something is going to happen. And this is a terrifying and deep darkness settled over him. It's the same kind of darkness that's described when God shows up physically on the earth when God does some great and mighty act. We're getting cued in here that this seems to be a normal picture in the ancient world, not for us, but a normal picture for them. But maybe God is up to something. And then look what happens in verse 17. After the sun had set and darkness had deepened, a smoking vessel with a fiery flame passed between the split open animals a smoking vessel with a fiery flame passed between the split open animals 
And that day, the Lord cut a covenant with Abram. This image of a smoking vessel or fire pot and a flaming torch. These are images in the Old Testament for Yahweh. These are images, pictures of God himself. See, as God is getting ready to enter into a covenant with Abram, everything's going according to plan. Abram, the lesser party, the lesser king, sacrifices the animals. He splits them apart. And when it comes time for him to walk through the middle of the carcasses and to proclaim his vows and to say, if I fail to keep covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. When that time comes for Abram to go and walk through that and recite his oaths, instead what happens is he falls into a deep sleep. And what shows up? God shows up. And who walks through the carcasses? Not Abram. Yahweh himself comes and walks through the carcasses saying to Abram, if what happens in this covenant, if anyone breaks this covenant, if I break it, if you break it, whatever happens in the middle of this, may what happened to these animals happen to me. God passes through the animals on Abram's behalf. God confirms his covenant by pledging his own life if Abraham fails. Abram, if you fail to uphold your end of the covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. And what do we ultimately see God doing on the cross? Coming and sacrificing his own life to be faithful to the covenant. See, when we proclaim that God is faithful, we recognize first and foremost that God is faithful to us, that he is faithful to the covenants that he made with us. But God doesn't just stop there. He's not only faithful to us, he is faithful for us. He is faithful on our behalf. That Jesus on the cross is God coming in flesh and being faithful to the covenant on our behalf. Where we had failed, where we had broke faith, where we had been disloyal, where we had been unfaithful, Jesus comes in as fully human and fully God, and he's faithful on our behalf. He comes and he takes on all of the consequences of our covenant infidelity. This is why the writer of Hebrews goes on and on and on about his death in relationship to covenant. It says, his death occurred to set us free from the offenses occurred under the first covenant. That when our love failed, his love remained steadfast and he came and was faithful on our behalf. He took on the consequences for us. He shed blood in our place to forgive our lack of loyalty. As we know, there is no forgiveness without blood being shed. But God shed his own blood that we might be forgiven, that we might remain in covenant relationship with him. God is the one who is faithful to his covenants. And he's the one who's faithful on our behalf when we couldn't be. He's faithful to us and he is faithful for us. As the worship team comes forward, we see that the story of scripture doesn't stop there. The God is faithful to us. He's faithful for us.
and he is faithful in us. That is, Jesus gives his life for us on the cross and is buried in the tomb and is risen on the third day. 40 or 50 days later, he ascends into heaven and he sends us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes to actually make us faithful, to do in us, to produce in us, to transform us in such a way that we can actually be faithful covenant partners with God. Because the obligations of the covenant have already been fulfilled by Jesus. And now the spirit of God has taken up residence in us to enable us to do what we could not do before. First Thessalonians puts it this way. Now, may the God of peace himself cause you, make you, May the God himself cause to happen inside of you. May he do on your behalf. May he cause you to be completely dedicated to him, completely loyal, completely faithful, wholeheartedly devoted and dedicated to him. May he cause you to be completely dedicated to him, not on your own effort, but with his spirit inside of you, enabling you, partnering with you, you participating with him, but all of the deposit of the spirit of God inside of you, causing you, causing me, causing us to be completely dedicated to him. And may your spirit and your soul and your body be intact and blameless the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ for the one who is calling you. He's the faithful one. He's faithful. And he will do this. He will be faithful to us. He has been faithful for us. And he is faithful in us, making us faithful. Would you stand this morning? We're gonna sing this chorus proclaiming that all of our life God has been faithful. Some of this may be a a prayer or a song of faith. We may be looking at the circumstances of our world and our lives and saying, God, I don't see it right now. I don't see how you're keeping your promises. I don't see how you're holding up your end of the bargain here, but I'm going to proclaim that all my life you've been faithful. All my life has been good because when I think about Jesus, I see how every promise you've ever made has been yes and amen in him. You've fulfilled every promise you've ever made to your people. And I'm gonna trust that you're gonna fulfill the promises that you haven't filled yet to come again, to restore everything to right, to make everything right and good and beautiful and lovely and perfect again. And in the world where things are not that way, I'm going to continue to trust you're the one who will come and do this. Then after we sing this chorus, we're going to come to the table because every time a covenant was established, a meal was shared. Carcasses were split and then they were fired up and grilled and eaten. But we come to this table of a new covenant. We recognize that Jesus has already fulfilled all the obligations on our behalf trusting that God's going to continue to fill all his. Just as the ancients did, we're going to feast on the sacrifice that ratified the covenant. The feast on the sacrifice, the great sacrifice of Jesus himself. And sharing the bread and the wine, 
to remind us of the body and the blood of Christ. Let's sing the song together.